Once again, let's join together to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus is King. We thank you for the particular kingdom, that thousand-year millennial reign of the Lord Jesus that we're going to be looking at. I pray that it would be an encouragement to every believer and an incentive for everyone who's not a believer to either find out how to become one or if that person already knows to stop resisting and to turn his or her life over to the Lord Jesus. And may he be the king of every one of our lives upon our invitation to him. So we thank you for what we have before us now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're looking at the millennium and beyond. We're doing kind of a little mini-series on some of the very end-time events. And then on Sunday evening, we're trying to catch up to where we are now. So uh, if you join us this evening, we're going to be doing a survey of three chapters, chapters 14 through 16. And right now, though, we're looking at a part of what's happening at the end that is exciting and horrifying at the same time. Depends where you are, where your standing is with the Lord. I'm going to introduce the passage before us this morning, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15, with some comments about the millennium, some of which we covered last week, some of which we didn't. And I I think it's a good thing for us to be able to review some of this. So what I want to do is I want to start out with some statements about the millennium, the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus that will take place, as we mentioned last week, after the tribulation period when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth with his saints at this particular time. So the, uh, the first thing about the millennium I'd like to mention this morning, the government will be a theocracy with the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. We've been singing about him. We've been singing about reality. The Lord Jesus is the king, and in this particular way, will be the king during that millennial period. You'll notice if you look back in chapter 20, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 20, if you look back to verse 4, it is a very long verse. And then toward the end of that verse, it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They're going to be believers reigning with Christ, but it's with him. He will still be the king. He will still be the one who is in control. He's in charge. He will literally sit on the throne of David and rule the world. Those who are helping him will be appointed to do that. An odd scripture, Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, to talk about the millennium, but when you see it, you'll understand why I'm Turning to, I'm not, I'm not actually asking you to turn there, but I'm going to read Luke 1, 30 to 33. This is the angel Gabriel. Usually we talk about this at Christmas time. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's why we sing about King Jesus, and we understand what is happening. He will literally take the throne of his father David during this millennial period. His reign will not stop at the end of that millennium. It will go on forever and ever. Interesting that Jesus will be all three branches of the government at the same time. 
If you were to look at Isaiah chapter 33, here's what it says in verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. He's the judicial department, if you will. The Lord is our lawgiver. He's the legislative branch as well. The Lord is our king. He's the executive branch as well. He will save us, it says. So the government will be a theocracy with the Lord Jesus Christ as the king, but he will be all branches of government. Everything will be under the control of the Lord Jesus. So immediately, automatically, we understand this is going to be a great time. This is going to be unlike anything that we've ever had because we've never had a theocracy, a pure theocracy where Jesus is in charge. Secondly, this morning, Jesus' reign will be one of absolute righteousness and justice. We would expect that from the Lord Jesus, but it's stated all through the Scriptures. This will be a time of absolute righteousness and justice. There should be no room for any complaint on the part of anyone. I say there should be. But do you think we're ever going to have a time where there are going to be human beings who aren't complaining? We're we're not going to see that time. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, please. I'd like for us to all take a look at this. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll bet you those reading in your Bibles find it faster than you on your tablets and your phones. Isaiah chapter 11. This is talking about that period of time, the millennium. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then this describes the sevenfold spirit of God. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Uh, He doesn't have to because he knows it all already. Verse 4, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Describing that millennial period, we can tell that. Note the context that follows. This is a millennial scene. Verse 6 introduces us to that period of time when all of nature will be back in harmony with itself. This is that time that we alluded to last week when the wolf will d- shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. So Jesus' reign will be one of absolute righteousness and justice, and this is the period of time unparalleled before then. We've never seen anything like that when all of nature will be in harmony with itself. How many of you love animals? Okay, um, how many of you could throw animals away? Just get rid of them all. That's good. There's none of that. Can you imagine this beautiful time? I was driving in this morning, and I passed three bucks on the road after having seen a deer in my backyard. 
this is this is a fantastic time here when all of nature can you imagine your children playing with these wild wild animals and with the snakes and all that sort of thing uh, nothing like anything that we've seen before and there's more the capital city during this this period of time will be Jerusalem during the millennium the millennium is on earth it's not in heaven so it'll be here and one passage that I'd like to read Isaiah chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and you've heard these verses before in connection with the millennium and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war any more so a lot of things that are going to be going on. Jerusalem's going to be the capital and a very important capital of this kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We've already mentioned the curse on nature is lifted. Fifthly, what will happen to people during this millennium? Well, there will be long life and good health. Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This is all in the context of the millennium. I'm sorry we can't go through each chapter and build up the context, but for some of this, uh, you've got the notes, and I encourage you to go and study that further, and don't take my word for any of these things. It's never a, a healthy thing to take anybody's word for that. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, also a millennial scene. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. If somebody dies at a hundred, he's a young man. That's not going to happen. goes on to say, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. There will be people who will die young, but it will be people who are dying young because of overt, blatant sin that they're committing. Ordinarily, people are going to be living through that entire period. If somebody does die at 100 years of age because he's punished, he will be considered a young man. What a tragedy. He died at such a young age. He was 100. So we're going to be seeing that happening to people, long life and good health. I hate to ask this question because some of you might be embarrassed by this, but maybe not. How many of you are sitting there in pain right now? You're sitting in pain right now in some part of your body. A lot of people are here. Um, it's not going to happen. Good health is a part of what we see here. Reproduction will continue during the millennial period. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 to 5 says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with staff in hand because of great age. It's not just old age, it's great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. That means there are going to be people of all ages, all through the period, children are going to be born. Not only that, the millennium will be a time of peace. These people are not going to die because of war. We're not going to lose a lot of them. We're not going to lose any of them. In Isaiah chapter 2, 4, it basically says there's going to be peace, no war anymore. 
Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 talks about peace and the absence of war during this time period. We could summarize by saying this, and I've got a lot of scripture there that we're not going to turn to, but the millennium will be an era of prosperity that the world has never, ever known before. The reference in Isaiah chapter 30 tells us that food will be rich and plentiful. Ezekiel 34, 27 tells us the same thing. The Zechariah passage tells us that crop failure will occur only to those who fail to come to worship at Jerusalem because Jerusalem will be the hub. They will be required to come there to worship, and those who refuse to do that will experience some crop failure. Others will not. There will be joy in labor, we read, a perfect economic system. In fact, let's turn to that passage. Let's turn to Isaiah 65. It's a good one to to see, especially if you had a bad week at work. Isaiah 65. Let's look at verse 21. Again, we're in the millennial context in this chapter. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There's going to be enjoyment. The fruit of the labor is going to provide joy. It will be a situation, again, unlike what we're used to now. And what we're told here, if we infer from what is here before us, no more labor unions, no more strikes, no more picket lines, no grievance committees, no goon squads, no boring, frustrating, unfulfilled jobs. Can you imagine all of that? Now put this picture together. Jesus ruling and reigning absolutely righteously, fairly, all these good things going on to our bodies, our health, our children, all of the prosperity, the economy is great, jobs are great. How could there be sin during this millennial period? After all, Satan's bound during this thousand years. Shouldn't this be a time of purity in living? Well, people will still have a sin nature. Our sin nature does not require Satan to be fully operative. All the people on earth at the beginning of the millennium will be saved, but they will be saved sinners. They will still have their sin natures and still pass on their sin natures to their children. And their children will still have to make personal decisions for Christ. And some will. Some will accept him. But some will reject him as well. Sin is still very possible. And we could turn to a lot of places, Isaiah and Zechariah particularly. But most of this sin is going to lie smoldering, hidden in the heart. Because Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, we are told. There will not be overt rebellion, but there still will be hearts that are sinful, just like there are hearts that are sinful now. There will be some overt sin, but it will be punished summarily. Those are the ones who will disappear, and it will seem like, oh, a hundred years, and they're gone. Uh, They're gone because they were in overt rebellion. Now we're in Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to pick up at verse 7. And we're going to ask what will happen when Satan is released after this thousand-year period. 
what will happen, and we're going to find some surprising things. Let's start out by reading verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And let me just stop here. Gog and Magog, a very interesting study all by itself. Ezekiel 38 and 39 referring to probably a particular part of the planet what we would refer to as the old USSR in particular, but here it's being used to describe all of the enemies of God's people all over the world because it's talking about the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Can you picture that? A lot of people during this millennium secretly are in rebellion, and now they're being called to make it public, and now they have someone to lead them. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, obviously Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That battle did not last very long. That was the final battle. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what will happen when Satan is released. Those children who have been born will make the baby boomers look like a drop in the bucket. There will be a tremendous population explosion. Put it together very logically. Long life, health, prosperity, security, no wars will add up to huge numbers of people. Think about how many people were added to this earth between the year 1000 and 2000. And the conditions were not like this. And people died a whole lot younger. There's scriptural warrant to say there may even be a canopy effect at that time. Protection against the heat of the sun and against storms. Some of you are dubious, so we better turn to that passage. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 4 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 2. In that day, and speaking, of course, of the millennial period, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy." There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Point being that what's going to be happening is protection. Protection from the ultraviolet rays of the sun. Protection from things that would cause our health to suffer. People are going to be living longer, more of them, so that that's why this scene is described at the very end of the times 
that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be unleashed, even on Satan's side. There'll be a lot of people on both sides. The devil who was deceived is going to be, his life is going to be ended, or at least he's going to be going to hell for all of eternity at that time. But in the meantime, he has this one final fling. Everyone in the kingdom will conform to the rule of Christ, but some will do so with their fingers crossed. Their hearts will not be in it. They will be rebels without a leader to rally them. Satan's release will reveal the real character of people who have been living very hypocritically. Satan will be released and assemble them all together from around the world. As I mentioned, his attempt is going to be short-lived and catastrophic. He will again, if you look at the text before you, he will again employ deceit in his strategy to gather people from everywhere for battle, numbering the sand of the sea. As they surrounded Jerusalem and put the saints at risk, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So the story has a happy ending, but not for Satan. Satan joined the other three members of the infernal trinity in the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so Satan goes to hell, not to run it. He's incarcerated there. He's not the king of hell. He's simply hell's most notorious prisoner. So he and the Antichrist, beast number one out of the sea that we were studying on Sunday nights, and the false prophet, beast number two out of the earth, will be joined by others who choose to reject the Almighty God and follow the forces of evil. But this chapter doesn't stop here. There are three significant objects that we want to look at this morning in verses 11 through 15. And we're going to see an introduction to the horror that is before us. First, let me introduce the horror, because this subject is a very unpleasant one. It concerns hell. It spells out everlasting punishment and torment. The darkest side of judgment is pictured for us so that we can avoid it. Did you catch that? So that we can avoid it. Sometimes people say, how could God be so cruel? God has told us all about it so that we can avoid it. We don't have to be a part of that. God has made every provision for us to spend eternity with Him. Christ's work on the cross has been completed on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is at work now to convince the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The ball is in our court. The next move is ours. God has done everything that He possibly could do. He said, here is hell, it's absolutely the worst. Here is heaven, it is absolutely the best. I want heaven for you. Why would anybody choose the other? But they do. It's their own choice. Hell was prepared for Satan and his followers. God is not willing that any of us should perish. But some here this morning may be a part of what is going to be pictured. I'm quoting here. I'm quoting something that may be a little unpleasant, maybe a little uncomfortable, but it's true. There is no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. 
No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produced a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame, and he would not have even brushed in fancy the nearest edge of hell. These are hard words. This is a hard subject. But it must be preached. You know Jesus said more about hell than he did about heaven? In fact, twice as much. Well, I want you to cheer up. The rest of the book is going to be positive, but not the rest of this chapter. The last two chapters are going to describe the eternal state. The news gets a lot better. But you know what? If you're headed there, this is a time of rejoicing. But if you're not, this is a time, as I mentioned before, of horror. The first of three significant events are introduced to us in verse 11. Let's pick up our reading there. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Let me stop there just to mention this. This is the great white throne judgment. Please understand, this is not for believers. This is for unbelievers. This will come out several times, but I want to make sure you hear it at the outset. This is not something a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will have to face. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, that is eternal separation from God. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. It's great, that Greek word megas that we see so often. We hear it today, megabucks. Some people are unkind and they call somebody a megamouth, megapolis. It's great throne both in size and in the magnitude of the awfulness described. Someone was seated on the throne. Someone of great authority. Someone that you wouldn't want to face in your worst nightmare if you were apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Picture this. Think about what it might be like to face a solemn judge and jury who are deciding your fate as the verdict is about to be given. Think about the tension, the awfulness of that moment. Or think about a principal, and you've just been called to the principal's office. This is one who was charged with intimidation. She looks like she could maybe could have intimidated a little bit. Think about going to the principal's office when you know the principal had the goods on you. You knew you were in trouble. And think about that jury scene, that courtroom scene. You knew you were guilty, and there you are. 
And think of the awful guilt, the intensity of the pressure, the anticipation of those apart from the Lord Jesus at this great white throne judgment. It was a white throne. It symbolized the absolute purity and perfection and holiness of the one on it. By the way, who was the one on the throne? There's no question in my mind that the one on the throne was the Lord Jesus himself. John chapter 5, verse 22, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. John 5, 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Great white throne judgment. There on the throne is the one who died for sinners. And there before him are sinners who said, no, thank you. We don't care to take what you gave for us. Second part of verse 11, the earth and sky fled from his presence. The throne appears to be in space. Most logical interpretation to me of the fact that the earth and sky or the earth and heaven will be fleeing away is to conclude that the present earth and heaven will be destroyed and will be replaced by the new heaven and the new earth. That's what it tells us, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Matthew 24:35 Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 13 listen as I read those verses. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will here's the third third time this expression is used. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I mention that because there are some popular teachers, at least one who is teaching now that uh, heaven and earth will not pass away, will not dissolve, that they're just going to be renovated, and there's more than that. Verse 12, John saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, standing to receive their judgment. The great and small indicate that God is no respecter of persons. These people will come from all walks of life, There's no diplomatic immunity because somebody is popular or rich or anything else. They will still face the judge at the great white throne judgment. There will be Hollywood stars there and Skid Row derelicts. There will be people from all degrees of what the earth considers greatness. They'll be successful and failed, popular and hated, wanted and unwanted individuals who will be there. There'll be professional athletes and uncoordinated klutzes who will be there. There will be the beauties and the beasts. There will be the brilliant ones and the boneheads. There'll be the yippies, the yuppies, the hippies, and the yuckies. This will be the ultimate melting pot, a classless condition when all stand on equal terms before the judge. These are the wicked dead. They were not raised in the first resurrection. They had to wait until after the millennial period for this. Daniel describes it. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, 
That's on one side of the millennium, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's what is before us right now. John 5, 29, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There will be two resurrections. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, before us, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Several great events that we alluded to. Here's another one. The books. Second part of verse 12 and verse 13. The scene has been set and then books were opened and then another book the book of life. The dead were judged, it says, by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Please understand, salvation is not the issue here. Even for those who have spurned the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are degrees of wickedness and punishment. The degree of punishment in hell is the issue here. I won't take time to go into this, but You'll see on the screen, and it should be in your outline, Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, Matthew 11, 22 through 24, talks about varying degrees of judgment. It'll be better for Tyre and Sidon than for you, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, there will be some of that, and that's what is before us. It's not talking about salvation. They'll be judged according to their works. No, not for salvation, but according to the degree of punishment. Verse 13 describes the second resurrection mentioned in passing back in verse 5. It says the sea gave up the dead that were in it. All the dead will be resurrected regardless of the condition of their bodies. Death, the grave, and Hades, the intermediate abode of the soul and spirit, it says gave up their dead. The bodies and spirits of the unrighteous dead are reunited. All the wicked dead of all time came for their judgment according to what they had done. And then the, uh, the final aspect we want to look at here has to do with the lake of fire in verses 14 and 15. This is Gehenna. This is the final hell. This is the real hell. This is the place of punishment. There's nothing intermediate about this. The punishment is eternal, and according to the Scriptures, it's painful. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. They would be needed no longer. The lake of fire, we're told, is the second death, that eternal separation from God. Verse 15 is a most sobering verse. This is the bottom line. It says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, we're not talking about those other two books where their deeds were noted. We're talking here about the book of life. We're talking here about whether somebody is saved or not. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, it's not the books of works, but the book of life will determine salvation. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I have on the screen now, for those of you who can't see it, a very famous painting by a fantastic contemporary artist, by the name of Bill Ressler. This is a picture that is hanging. If you go out the back door to my left, you can see it on the steps nearby that I hope can be a reminder to us every time we go past there and look up there. This is the reality of a few people taking the way of the cross 
and crossing a chasm of fire and a huge number of people who are going not the straight and narrow, but the the wide way that leads to destruction. And I hope you can see those flames and be reminded what we're talking about is not a fairy tale. We have people that we know, people that we love, and people that we will be meeting in the future who are going to be headed where those arrows are pointed into that fiery pit. That's reality. should be a great incentive for every one of us to be praying, to be ministering, to be sharing, to be evangelizing. When there's a short-term mission trip, count me in. But I'm not going to wait for that because I've got a neighbor, I've got a family member who needs to know that the Lord Jesus could come back at any moment ushering in all of the events that will culminate in the millennial period that will end in that great white throne judgment. So I I trust as you go by today, you will look at that picture and every time that be a reminder that thank you, Lord, that I'm on that path of the cross, that I follow Jesus. But there are many others that you have me here for salt, light, and fragrance to reach them. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gripping graphic words that are here, the words that should provide incentive for us as well as encouragement. We pray that they would do just that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.